Yle Podcast. This podcast series is based on my experiences while making the documentary film Who Was Felix Kirsten? The film is about Heinrich Himmler's mysterious personal doctor and the revelations that followed. The reason for making this podcast is that after finishing the documentary, well, suffice it to say that the Felix Kirsten story never really went away. Episode 7 True Colors Aside from these few SS men, the men most intimately associated with Himmler, I may say without exaggeration that Himmler's staff of 48 hated me cordially. They distrusted me. I was a foreigner. I had refused to become a member of the SS or to wear a uniform. I had refused to be endowed with a title of any kind. I was queer. I was suspected of being a secret agent of the English. I was suspected of having designs on the life of Himmler. I was avoided. A wide circle was drawn around me. That was an excerpt from Felix Kirsten's memoirs. When making my film, we found, among others, a letter from Kirsten to Finnish Minister of Foreign Affairs Witting, where he asked whether it would be okay for the Finnish government if he accepted a position in the SS and the rank of an officer that Himmler had been offering him. Witting answered that it would be okay, no problem. These kind of documents and some other testimonies coming from Heinrich Himmler's inner circle contradict Kirsten's own version of the truth. Himmler's adjutant, Werner Grothmann, points in a letter to Professor Gerald Fleming that they were aware of Kirsten possessing an SS uniform and that the staff in the SS headquarters had a hard time convincing Kirsten not to wear it. The head of staff, General Karl Wolf, supports this same fact when interrogated by the Allies about Felix Kirsten. Karl Wolf was also certain that Kirsten would most likely betray all of his old comrades. Historian Lars Westerlund had also found documents which prove Felix Kirsten's membership in the SS. You also have found documents which prove that Kirsten was the member of SS. Yes, no doubt. So can you explain a little bit more about that? There's a personal cartothèque in, in the Bundesarchiv in Berlin. So I looked for the card of Kirsten and there it was. He had joined the SS as a physician in 1941. Here's, for instance, a table of his ancestors because no one could join SS without certain... Yes, yes, he had to prove that he was an Aryan. Also, Professor Hannu Rautkallio had found evidence that Kerstin was actually working directly for the RSHA under the command of General Walter Schellenberg. Arno Kerstin mentioned that his father actually had an office next to Walter Schellenberg. We have to remember that Walter Schellenberg was the highest-ranking intelligence figure in the Third Reich at that time. So, having an office next to him was not just a minor detail. Would Schellenberg have allowed just any civilian to have an office next to his own in the SS headquarters? In his own memoirs, Schellenberg says that he was in constant danger and had to prepare for likely assassinations and or daily threats on his life. This meant, among other things, that his desk was equipped with two machine guns pointing directly at the door. And a single push of the button under the desk would activate alarms across the building, as well as those machine guns, which were programmed to fire simultaneously towards intruders at the door and continue firing until the belts have emptied. At the same time, all the guards would have seized anyone coming too close to the building as well. 
So, would it have been possible that there would have just been some innocent Finnish masseur installed in the next office and walking around the building, brimming with the most sensitive secret matters? Especially when almost anyone could be a spy? Just anybody? Did Kirsten play a special role in the RSHA, where he was enjoined to use civilian clothes? The only problem was that, according to photographs from his time in Finland between 1919 and 1922, and later in Berlin, it seemed obvious that Felix Kirsten fancied uniforms and coveted ranks, not to mention fancy clothes and the like. So, the question begs, while Kirsten was working in the SS headquarters, did he have the power to resist his desire to wear a perfectly tailored black uniform designed by Hugo Boss, one tailored exclusively for him as well? In his memoirs, Kirsten says that he was given the rank along with the uniform, but never made use of it. He just let it hang in his wardrobe, accumulating dust. Does Grothman's testimony, as well as that of Carl Wolfs, suggest that Kirsten had a specific role where he was banned from wearing an SS uniform, even though he belonged to the SS? Was he supposed to be simply a good masseur? Or one who was able to offer insight into Heinrich Himmler's inner sanctum, the most influential and feared man in the Third Reich? There were a couple of documents I came across which me and producer Jan Wellman were not able to decipher the direction they were pointing. One was a report to Himmler on the results of the Reinhardt action in Poland. The operation included the confiscation of property and exploitation of labor. It was prepared by the economic section of the SS. Hey, Alto. Hi. I told you about one document which was uh, from the Nuremberg uh, trial. You mean the uh, Reinhardt operation yeah, or yeah. the Oste or Operation Reinhardt was the code name for the German plan to exterminate Poland's Jews in German-occupied Poland. In that particular memorandum, the name Kirsten is referred to in a way which raises a question. The section goes, Part 3. The Jewish Property. Number 1. Who can provide information of existing Jewish movable property? Does such a property still exist outside the Warsaw Ghetto? Are the private hereditary estates of the Jews, as far as valuables are concerned, still handled outside Osti and formerly handled by Special Action Kersten or Gruppenführer Frank? This could be a stretch, but I mean, if that bear the case, I'm sure that uh, that connection probably would have been made. Because this is, after all, a very uh, major part of the Holocaust. It's, it's a major part of the um, extermination. I mean, this is a follow-up to the uh, Osti operation and uh, in the conference at the uh, Vanze conference in uh, 42, where the final solution uh, was discussed. So I doubt that uh, our Kirsten would be involved. Special action Kirsten. Jewish property? At least the Kirsten we had come to know would have been flattered if a special operation was codenamed after him. Felix Kirsten always maintains in his memoirs how he was approached frequently by people beseeching him to help them through his influence on Himmler. And that was the kind of role he had in mind. We were speaking about Wilhelm Wolf. Yeah, astrologist. Or astrologer, yes. For Himmler, Wilhelm Wolf was portraying Kirsten. Oh, no. No, I think it's a very disparaging portrait of Kirsten. 
I mean, he sees Kirsten uh, is a thoroughly an opportunist person who is always looking out for himself rather than anything else. Do you remember how he wrote, uh, how was the first meeting in Kirsten's apartment, luxurious apartment? And, uh, I think as far as I remember, he says that the apartment was very well appointed, um, a very impressive apartment. A lot of arts and decorations. Yeah, it was an apartment that taken over from a Jew. I recall a dream I had one night while making the documentary. Like the protagonist in Ingmar Bergman's classic Wild Strawberries, I saw Kirsten appearing like a Janus-faced figure. A character with two faces, back and front, making it possible for him to display a good face to everyone and parlay his game in either direction. Does that sound convoluted? In my dream, he was a kind of double agent in telling royalties, bankers, diplomats, and industrialists that he could help them because he can influence Heinrich Himmler. He was able to do exactly the same for the reverse side. He could approach Himmler and his staff and tell them that he could help them because he has well-known and powerful patients whom he could influence. How easy would it be for the SS to fabricate a threat against someone and conversely tell that threatened person that there is a savior Himmler's Finnish masseur. The threatened person, whose fate is to end up in prison or in a concentration camp, or maybe sent to death, goes to Kersten, who sympathetically listens and tells him that he would see what he could possibly do. And, presto, Kersten usually comes up with a solution, or a half a solution, if we can call it that. The threat would be handled, but it would cost the person. Either it would mean a loss of property or that his factories should now work for the Nazi war machine, or something to that effect. That pattern was repeated many times. One of the last examples concerns the release of seven Swedish engineers in 1944. The Gestapo arrested seven Swedish engineers on the charge of espionage and sentenced them either to death or to prison. A Swedish industrialist who had the engineers in his employ was told to go meet Kersten. He did, and Kersten told him, that he will see what he can do. Jacob Wallenberg promised to pay Kersten 50,000 Swedish crown if he managed to release the men. Kersten got back to him and said that he can help, but that he doesn't want money. In return, he wishes for Wallenberg to arrange him Swedish citizenship. At that point, it seemed that Kersten's Finnish citizenship was no longer a trump card. And, oh yes, also an apartment in Stockholm. Wallenberg arranged for the apartment and Kersten moved to Stockholm. Now, we need to remember that Stockholm was a hotbed of spies and agents from a variety of allied intelligence organizations, and all of them were keen to have a peek into Heinrich Himmler's headquarters, and Kersten was the one to offer them that very insight. You remember the Hewitt robots? Well, Abraham Hewitt was a businessman who also spoke German. And he was involved previously with uh, some dealings that also uh, touched uh, Jakob Wallenberg. And uh, he came uh, to Sweden to deal with um, American company issues in Sweden. In 1943? Yeah, even before that. Uh, and then in '43, he became, we don't know because there are different accounts, but he kind of appointed himself is an unofficial representative of the American government who has the ears of uh, President Roosevelt. 
And he uh, came to Kirsten through the recommendations of one of Wallenberg uh, business associates who suggested that Kirsten is a very important person and one who has the ears of uh, the upper echelon of SS, i.e. Himmler, let's say um, a therapist of uh, Himmler. So under the uh, pretense of um, soliciting Kirsten to treat him, he met with Kirsten. I think he met him three times. He got the yeah. treatment. In those discussions, of course, Kirsten shared with Hewitt allegedly desire of Himmler to make peace with the Allies, with the U.S., with the West and transmit those wishes to the Americans, i.e. Roosevelt. So, what do you think? Was he just an innocent civilian whom Himmler gave permission to move to a neutral country and in return promised to come regularly to Berlin to treat him? And in doing so, still able to come and go inside the SS headquarters and have an office next to Schallenberg and his machine guns? I think it was very interesting to read uh, Hubert's report uh, also because during those treatments, Kirsten was also telling his story and uh, showing documents which were kind of proving that his story is true, that he was actually forced by the uh, SS and Himmler relocate. And that document which I sent you today, the document about how 1941 Himmler had ordered that Kirsten should move to Berlin. From Holland. From Holland, and it was yep. uh, May 1941. Uh, it's also interesting on that document that you showed me today, is that he is there at the uh, command of uh, the Reichsführer, and is only traveling with his personal belonging, nothing else. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> Why Why was he not able to take his uh, other belongings with him? Yeah, yeah. For me now, the document which was showing that Kirsten actually belonged to the SS already on February 1941. He was already a member of SS when that document was produced. Yeah. Because uh, I had a feeling now, later on, that that document he was also showing to Hewitt was just uh, engineered uh, yeah, only for yeah. that purpose that he yeah, can yeah. kind of uh, convince people that... Uh, of course, he had to ingratiate himself with Hewitt. What is better than being uh, someone who is, unfortunately, uh, is a puppet of much bigger and stronger forces and he's only doing it because he sees that there is a way out of the darkness to perhaps uh, stop that old madness and restore Germany to its former self through uh, a peace with the West, you know, so it's wonderful. And you, when you think about it, that later on, at the end of the war, if you accept Kerstin to be that, uh, then you don't have to worry about having to go through any inquiry of whether you have to be Nazify or denazify and um, exactly because uh, yeah that's uh, that's it explains how, why he was not inter interrogated after the war you mean that yeah. if you were to ask the question what could have benefited Kirsten the most 
the victory of the Allies or the Axis, I believe the answer is clear. Had the Nazis won, Himmler would have handsomely rewarded Kersten. Kersten could have become a Minister of Health or something of that magnitude. In the Third Reich, he was enjoying a life of wealth and bright future. If we dressed Kersten with the uniform of an SS Dornbahnführer, which Felix Kersten undeniably had hanging in an office closet, the stage would have appeared totally different. Then, he would be working for the RHSA, the Reich's main security office. Himmler, his highest superior, as well as would-be General Schellenberg and General Karl Wolf. In that hierarchy, Kersten would be the one who was supposed to follow their orders. We have to remember what Werner Neuss's starting point was. A detail in his father's diaries claiming that Himmler's masseur was his father's childhood friend, Felix Huberti. Neuss's father had been an eyewitness. Werner Neuss started to check whether that could be true, simply comparing Felix Kersten's own story of his past to documents that would second Kersten's published memoirs. But they do not. On the contrary, the documents produce a character who, from the beginning, changes the story of his military history time and time again. Why does one have to change his personal narrative? Of course, if the old one no longer serves you, then just alter the story a bit. Make it more entertaining. But never look back. How does it go in Shakespeare's Richard III? The king says, And not I will join the dark forces to myself become an enemy. The podcast is directed and realized by Arto Koskinen. Written by Arto Koskinen and John Bernstein. The voiceover of Arto Koskinen is dramatized by Trent Pansy. Sound design and music is made by Kimmo Vantinen.